Perinatal Stories Australia. Welcome to Perinatal Stories Australia. My name is Rebecca, and every episode we provide a listening ear to the lived experiences of mental illness during pregnancy and postpartum. I hope this podcast reduces stigma, informs listeners about support services available, and inspires those on their own healing journey. More importantly, I hope you can hear these stories and know you're not alone. Thank you for being here to hold space for the stories we often keep to ourselves. Welcome back. I am joined today by Emma. Um, Emma's a fellow MBU mum. We were actually in the same MBU at different times. I'm so grateful Emma's here to take us on her journey. It's a long one. Um, Very long. Emma's also been involved in the new MBU that has opened up in Sydney this week, actually. Yes. But I'm I'm so looking forward to picking her brain because Emma's gone through this and has then wanted to make things better for other mums. So I'll be here, I'll probably be crying, but we'll just let Emma talk. <laughs> I've got the goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so welcome. Do you want to introduce yourself? Maybe a bit of your family, your story. Sure. My name's Emma. I like to go in actually and first say I'm a special education teacher. I am a wife to Tim and we've been together for about 20 years. I am a mum to three boys. I have Oliver who's nine Elliot, who's four, and Rory, who's two. So you've got three boys. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe let's start with the fact that it wasn't easy for you to bring your three boys into this world, if you're happy to start there. Absolutely. It's probably a good place to go. Like I said, Tim and I now have been together for 20 years from when we met. We wanted kids and, you know, we pick names and all that sort of thing. And when we actually first got together, I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome. And I actually remember going back to the GP after I'd been through all the testing and I said, well, can I get pregnant? And he said, well, do you want to have babies now? And I went, no, no, I'm 19. And he went, well, you cross that bridge when you come to it. And I said, well, how, what's the percentage? And he goes, I can't tell you. And that was probably the best thing that anyone could have possibly said, because I think there's people out there that are just told, nope, you can't, that's it. And you live with that. Or there's people that say, oh yeah, definitely you can. And you know, you live through that disappointment. So he said, when you're ready, you come back. And I actually remember getting the phone call to tell me all of my results and Tim was with me. And I just burst into tears and I cried. And, And he said, you know, at 19, he goes, it's all right, we'll figure it out. So seven years down the track, we got married and we wanted to start trying straight away. So things weren't really happening for us. Um, It was about 12 months on, I actually found out I was pregnant and I was overjoyed. Because of my PCOS, my periods were all over Mm. the place. So it was hard to keep track of where things were and what was going on. It was sort of a positive test, but it was very faint. So I went to the doctor and sort of explained everything. And she went, all right, we'll do some blood tests. And she basically said to me, your blood results are very low. It doesn't look like it's going to be viable. And she said, we'll do another lot of tests and just see if they're rising. So we did another blood test and... She said, no, the numbers are going down. I I kind of just knew, I knew from the beginning it wasn't. And this was the actual really hard part, and I think it's really coloured my journey, is when I went back, she said to me, oh, it's all right, it's not a real baby anyway. And that just absolutely threw me then because I had it, you know, at 25 years old, all right, well, I was sort of making a big deal about nothing. I had nothing to worry about. I had nothing to grieve, even though it was in my head, I had this whole idea that there's this baby coming and it was going to be at this particular date and I had a dream of, 
how I was going to tell my husband and mm. all this sort of thing. Um, she just said, oh, no, it's, you know, it's not really a real baby, so there's nothing to really worry about. You haven't got to the scan. It's just called a chemical pregnancy. So I walked away from that. All right, well, I guess I just won't tell anybody. It forces you to suppress what you're going through. Yeah, absolutely. I just kind of went, I can't grieve this because it's not a real baby. That's what she told me. Obviously, it must just be something wrong with my body and that's yeah. it. Because I was yeah not coping, I guess I'd gone back to that doctor and said, you know, I was obviously struggling with my emotions around all of that in that situation. And so she put me on a very, very low dose and it kind of just, I guess, took the edge off and worked for me. I chose not really realising, not knowing anything about medication. I went, oh, I'm just going to go off this because I don't want to interfere with any of this conception stuff. No one had given me any medical advice. I hadn't thought to ask any questions. So we started getting testing done. And apart from my PCOS, they couldn't really tell us what the problem was. They said, oh, apparently you ovulate, so that's a good thing. So we got a referral to a gynecologist. She sort of went, oh, I don't really know what to do. We can do IVF. And at that point, I just wasn't ready. I just thought, I can't. I can't do this. I'm not mentally prepared. I went on and took some medication. Still nothing happened. So it actually got to about three years on and I finally kind of realized I was ready. I'm like, I can't keep doing this. It was just killing me every month and it was getting really exhausting and my husband and I were really sort of struggling mentally. We were blaming ourselves and our relationship was really taking a hit so I said, that's it. I made this phone call and we went through going to the IVF clinic. So I got referred to another doctor and she was fabulous. When she goes, oh, before I do anything, I actually just want to investigate what's going on. So she sent me in for a laparoscopy and they said, look, there's nothing we can see. There's no endometriosis. There's nothing that we were thinking might've been the problem. So you're well on your way now to start doing IVF. But we thought before we do that, we're going to go on a trip have a last hurrah before we start the IVF. I think I went to book it and I found I was pregnant. Wow. And I remember going into the doctor and saying, what is going on here? And they went, oh, sometimes that just happens when you've had a laparoscopy in DNC. It all just happens. I'd been feeling really off, really unwell. And by this point, I think I'd been so disappointed by everything that had happened in the years before. I just stopped doing the regular testing. I didn't bother with, you know, every month pulling out a pregnancy test because I just was so over seeing a negative result so I that weekend I'd actually did like a five kilometer fun run <laughs> and I was kind of feeling really off like really tired and I thought oh maybe it's just from that like I was actually really into exercise at that point and I was just feeling a bit funny when I was exercising so I thought oh, I'll just grab a test and just check and it came up positive straight away and it was so different to the first test that I'd done where it had come up positive it was like really strong and I didn't know what to do like I was kind of pacing around going okay what do I do now what do I do and the due date was my birthday <laughs> so when my husband came home I actually told him straight away I didn't know what else to do yeah went to the doctor and went through the whole process of doing all the blood tests and it was so different everything was great everything was looking really well but I think from that point it was like one long exercise in holding my breath I was so panicked that I was not going to get a healthy baby out of it and again like I'm reflecting on this now I was really doing those safety behaviors where I was stopping my heart from getting too attached so I actually remember going for our 12-week scan and I, I just felt awful I was so anxious I was so worried that I was going to get in there and it was going to be no heartbeat or something like that I was just so nervous so it was wasn't until we saw you know a little person I was I kind of realized that it was real and but even then you know thinking back we didn't even go and do any sort of the buying everyone gets excited and goes oh have you bought a car seat have you bought a pram have you bought all these things and I remember going into this baby shop one day and sort of walking in there and freaking out and walking back out again because I'm like I don't think I'm ready yet like we were sort of so far along 
because I thought I'm not going to buy anything until I get to a point where I know this baby's going to be okay. And then even the decisions that I made, we actually made our decision to go through the public because they had said to us, oh, you know, if anything goes wrong with the with the labour or the baby, once the baby's born, we'll send you up to the public anyway. Mm. And I went, well, I'm not taking that mm. risk. I don't want to have that risk. I want to know that if I'm, I'm in the, exactly the right place that I need to be in case something goes wrong. So I was just constantly preparing for the worst case scenario. It shows where your head was at. As you said, it is a protective behaviour that's you trying to gain some control. Yeah, for sure. And I think the other thing that sort of happened in all of this was the pregnancy was awful. I ended up with HG. We actually even got to a point where one day I vomited so much I couldn't move, I couldn't function. My husband had to call an ambulance and up at the hospital mm. on a drip. And this was after saying to doctors and things, like, I'm really unwell. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, just have a few crackers and have your water and stay hydrated. And um, I was diagnosed with something called EDS, which is Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. I have very hypermobile joints. Yeah. And I discovered this because my pelvis basically fell apart straight away. And that was probably about eight weeks. I was actually waddling like a fully pregnant person. People started picking up that I was pregnant because I was doing this really funny waddle. And it was all because my joints with the relaxin mm-hmm. and everything were so loose. Plus with my hypermobility, I was just falling apart. So I was actually in agony for the entire pregnancy. I was wearing like multiple belts around my hips. Yeah. I dislocated my hip. I was at the physio a couple of times a week. I had to finish work quite early because I just couldn't function anymore. I got to about 28 weeks and it was just so hard. And you've got all these competing or compounding, I should say, grief and Mm -hmm. IVF we know is associated Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. a higher risk of perinatal depression and anxiety. We know HG especially is associated Mm -hmm. with perinatal Mm -hmm. depression or anxiety. Mm -hmm. Hypermobility or EDS I don't know the statistics there, but I can assume the fact that you're not functioning, you're not yourself, your health is deteriorating, how much of an impact that that would be yep. having on you. So you've got all these things compounding. Yeah, I'd gone from being this really like strong, active, I was doing, you know, like pole dancing. I was in like probably the best shape of my life. I was really active and really healthy too basically feeling like I was falling apart all in like eight weeks you know I I wanted to love it I really did because I was so desperate to be pregnant then when I was I was so miserable I look back now I'm like no wonder I ended up where I was because I was so frightened this whole time that I wanted this baby so much everyone just kept saying to me how great it was and how positive it was and everyone was so happy for me it was so hard to say I am not happy because I didn't want to appear like I wasn't grateful for it So when he was born, that was my main mode of thinking. It was like, oh, well, I can't tell anyone that I'm feeling this way because I'm so frightened they're going to go, but you wanted this, you wanted this. That's what's really made me probably take a long time to come out Mm. per se and and sort of share my story. So we're at this point, Oliver was born. How was the birth? It's, I had, you know, a whole plan in mind and we did the courses and all that sort of thing. So I had this idea in my head of wanting to have a water birth. So it was my birthday. I started having contractions and they were really strong and they started getting really close together and we were doing all the app timing and all that sort of thing. And my husband said, no, they've said that when it's at this point, you should call the hospital. So we called the hospital and they said, oh no, she can still talk. It's a first baby. It's going to take a while to stay home. Yeah. So we went on for about half an hour and it got to the point where I was just like there was no breaks between my contractions like excruciating pain not so much pain excruciating pain not so much pain I had no break it was just one contraction after the other 
we were only about 10 minutes away from the hospital, got up to the hospital. I couldn't get out of the car and my husband sort of pulled up out the front and he's trying to get me out and all these people started running from everywhere. They put me in a wheelchair and they wheeled me upstairs and left me in this room. And eventually a nurse comes in and she was lovely and she goes, oh, I'm just going to give you a check. And I'm thinking, okay, here we go. She's going to tell me that I'm, you know, not even dilated. <laughs> and I said, I want an epidural. Just give me the epidural now. I'd gone from being this, you know, super chill. I'm going to have a water birth. And then she goes, oh, well, look, the bad news is that you can't have an epidural. And I'm like, why not? And she said, well, the good news is the baby's on its way. <laughs> so I'd pretty much was pushing by the time we got mm. there. Um, so I hopped in the bath and all of a sudden I just sort of felt calm and it was still really painful, but I just felt like I was on another planet. Everyone was around me and talking, but I kind of wasn't with them. So they said I was doing all the right things and was pushing naturally. His head came out and they said a few more contractions and then he'll be out completely. And I wasn't really knowing what was going on. I just assumed I was pushing and it was all fine. Um, my husband tells me later that they were discussing that he was stuck. And I just thought, I'm not getting out of this bath. I'm not moving. So I just remember giving the most almighty push and he came out. Again, I was not realizing we've scooped the baby up, you know, oblivious to this. The bath was full of yeah. blood and they pulled me out of the bath and they moved me over to the bed. And the midwife said, oh, look, I just need to check you. And when I'm just a bit concerned, you might have suffered what we call a fourth degree tear. Mm. Basically, you're completely torn. Mm -hmm. There's no, no tissue left. We need to take you into surgery quite quickly. So it just felt like all of a sudden, all these people rush into the room. They've taken the baby away from me. They've handed him over to my husband and I've been rushed out of the room. And that whole time I was saying, please put me under because I'm terrified of surgery. I was so scared of having surgery. I'd had some awful experiences in the past. And they went, oh, no, 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 you know, you need to be okay for your baby. We'll just give you a spinal and it'll all be okay. They gave me the spinal and they lied me down and then all of a sudden everyone's around and they're all doing their jobs and everyone's having a chat about their Christmas plans. And I remember lying in recovery and by this point it must have been about two or three o'clock. I was in surgery for a really long time and I kept saying, when can I go back to my baby? I'd had this whole vision in my head what post-birth was supposed to look like and that I'd be, you know, have this really lovely time with the baby on my chest and have this lovely bonding time. And I felt like that had already been taken away from me because I'd been rushed out of the room. My husband had been handed the baby. Mm. I was in recovery pretty much for almost the entire night. And I found out when they put me up in the maternity ward that because everyone had sort of rushed out and were looking after me, they left my husband with my son in the birthing suite, just sitting there. Mm. And he said he literally was just still in the blanket that they'd put him in when he was born. And he said no one knew that he was there. <laughs> and he went looking for someone like to sort of say, what do I do? Like, you've just handed me this baby. I have no idea what I'm doing and my wife is gone. And they actually end up saying to him, oh, look, you're going to have to wait in the waiting room until your wife comes back to the maternity ward. So he spent like five hours just sort of sitting there with this newborn baby in the waiting room, not really knowing what was going on, not knowing how I was, not really knowing what to do with this baby. Um, I think a bit in shock over the whole experience because it had happened so quickly. So that, that became my first experience. Um, and I was put in a bed, my husband, so he left. So I was on my own with this baby and I was feeling awful after the surgery. I remember I started vomiting and I must have been having a reaction to whatever medication they gave me for the surgery. And I started vomiting and I couldn't mm. stop. And that just went on for pretty much the first 12 hours. And I remember at one point a nurse walked in, like I was buzzing, sort of saying, I don't know what to do. Is there somewhere that can, someone can, that can help me with the baby because I'm, I don't want to vomit on him. And they went, we can't take him away from you. We can just sort of like push him in the cot but we have to leave him in the room. So I have to sort of sit there while I'm vomiting and listen to this nurse sort of just pushing him around my room while he cried. And I guess he was crying because he was hungry. 
but I didn't really know even how to feed him or anything like that while I'm being sick. So it actually took until about six o'clock that night when a new nurse came on to figure out, oh, we need to give you something to stop the vomiting. That was my very first day with my very first newborn child. It took an absolute toll. I felt so alone because my husband had gone home. Um, I had all these people coming out of my room. So I had the surgeon, I had a physiotherapist. I had all these people sort of arriving and asking me questions and telling me to sign paperwork. And I guess I was still a bit out of it from the medication and obviously vomiting and feeling really unwell and just in a whole heap of shock. Mm. So I can't even remember what anyone said. I know that they were telling me that I'd been through this really bad situation. And then on the ward, I became known as the fourth degree tear lady. Like it was... And I just remember being in a whole heap of pain and being really immobile. I was stuck to the bed with a catheter and drips. That was going on for about two or three days. And my husband couldn't stay because it was in a public system. It was, I guess, Christmas, so they were very short staffed. So no one was sort of able to come and help. And yeah, it was, I remember probably day three, I was just, I think that's when the anxiety really started kicking in. I'm just thinking, what have I done? Mm. Why? I've made the biggest mistake. Why did I want this? This is terrible. Yeah, I I couldn't put my finger on why I was really feel what I was feeling. I knew I was feeling horrible, obviously, because of the situation that I was in. And I thought maybe once I go home, it'll get better. Everything that we need is at home. My husband's at home to help. It'll all be okay. When I got home was when things started to escalate. As I was discharged, they went to weigh him and they actually said to me, oh, he's lost a lot of weight. And they kept questioning me about how I was feeding. I said, I don't know. I'm just doing what I've been shown. And they said, oh, maybe we'll hook you up to a pump and just see what's going on. And then about 20 minutes later, she came back and I basically produced nothing. And she started asking all these questions. She's like, oh, did you know, did you have colostrum? What's going on? I went, I don't know. No one's helped me with this. So she gave him a bottle of formula, which he had very happily. I mean, he must've been starving by this point. So by the time yeah, I got home, I thought, oh, my God, I'm already failing. I didn't know that I didn't have any milk or colostrum or anything. I've got this injury that is making it really hard for me to be mobile and look after my baby or lift him. You know, I've made this huge mistake because I can't do this. Like, it's just too hard. I remember being sent home and, they, and the nurses are giving me this plan. They said, he really needs to put on weight. So you need to feed him every two hours. Then once you're done feeding, you need to pump. And while you're pumping, you need to give him a comp feed of formula. And if he doesn't put on this amount of weight in the next three or four days, then he'll have to come back to hospital. So that just absolutely put the pressure on. They said, you'll have nurses coming out to check you and check the baby and weigh and everything. And they'll help be able to help. And every day, I guess, because they were so short staff I'd get a different nurse and every nurse would tell me something different the more that this happened the more I kept thinking I can't do this I'm failing like I'm a terrible mother I've been a teacher I've done childcare. I've been a nanny I've looked after kids my whole life I should just know what I'm doing why don't I know why is this so hard we were supposed to have people coming for about a week or so and it got to like the last two days and I got a phone call from a nurse saying, everybody's gone on holidays, I'm so backed up with visits, I can't make it today, is there anything you want to know? And I went, when's it get easier? Like This is so hard. By this point, it was like I was doing this whole process and by the time I'd finished the process, I had to start again. So there was no time for eating, no time for sleeping and I guess I was becoming more and more anxious as time went on. I just hated it. I hated the whole process. And I was getting really worked up that I was doing damage to my baby because I hadn't been able to give him the feeding right. he needed. And I said to this nurse, like, how long do I have to do this process for? She went, oh, six weeks. Like, it'll be fine once you get to six weeks. And I thought, I can't do this for another four weeks. I'm, I was really struggling. I was not eating. I was not sleeping. 
I'd lost a lot of weight and I went to see my regular GP who had been wonderful throughout my pregnancy, but he didn't quite understand. Anyways, you just need a really good sleep. You need you know, someone to take the baby and just give them a feed and you just have a really good sleep. Take some sleeping tablets and you'll be fine. He said, oh, look, I can look into perhaps putting you on some medication, just a low dose, just to sort of help with the anxiety and make you feel a little bit better, especially after the experience you've gone through. So he sent me away with a prescription. I can't even tell you what it was. Um, he was making sure that it was going to be the right one for breastfeeding. Yeah. He was being quite fussy about what he was going to prescribe. And he didn't really give me a lot of information about it or any side effects or any of that sort of thing. So I started taking this medication pretty much immediately. And by this point, I'd gone through another week and it was another week of very little sleep, not a lot of eating, just getting progressively worse. And I remember at one point, my husband walked into the room one day and I just put Oliver down and I said to him, I can't do it. I can't do this. I'm really not enjoying this. This is not what I thought it was going to be. Can we just take him back to the hospital and just leave him there? We now reflect back on that time and he was trying to be really, really helpful. He was really struggling as well and I don't think he knew how to, to support himself, let alone try to support me. So it was just a really hard time. And I remember this particular night and I'd gotten through Christmas. Oliver was about three weeks old by this point and the medication was not working. The side effects were that it had really increased my anxiety. You know, you get that sort of peak of anxiety before it comes down again. So it was a side effect no one had explained to me or told me was going to be a thing. Mm. So I started having panic attacks and I got to this particular night where I said to my husband, I just want to try and get some sleep. I just need to go away from the baby because I was reacting to every little noise that he made. I'm going to just try and get some sleep. It'll be better. I remember lying there and I just was in this state of fear, just constant, constant. Not that I was going to die, but that this was never going to change. Like I was never going to get away from this feeling. And all I wanted to do was almost just try and run away from my body. I didn't want to run away from the situation, but I wanted to run away from my body because I was in just that awful, overwhelming, I can't function state of fear. And I remember calling my mum and I said, mum, something's wrong. I'm just feeling awful. I, I don't know what to do. And she's like, I can come over and help with the baby. That's okay. And I said, no, he doesn't need help. He's fine. Like he was okay. <laughs> He'd started putting on the weight and all that sort of thing. But I, it was me. I was the, I was the one that was having the problem. And my husband came downstairs and he sort of said, what's going on? I said, I don't know, but I can't, like I was so agitated. And so he said, I'm just going to call the nurse, whatever the nurse hotline was and just ask some questions and just see if there's anything they can recommend. And they said, we'd probably recommend for her to go to the hospital. Anyway, we showed up that night at the emergency department and I just felt like half of me was almost like, okay, great. Someone's going to help me. And the other half was like, what am I doing here? I felt like I was an absolute failure. Anyway, I sort of said, look, I'm just, I'm having panic attacks. I can't sleep. I haven't eaten. I can't function. You know, I need help. And she sort of asked if I was suicidal. And I went, no, I don't, I don't think so. Like, I, I'm not sure. My brain wasn't working. It was literally just like, I'm even just like feeling it a bit now. Like, I can t- it's taking me back to that time where I'm like, I just remember this feeling like, I want to stay, but my body wants to run (laughs) and I want to get away from it. I want to get away from this feeling. I just don't want to be like this. And I thought I was going crazy. I just thought like, I'm losing my mind. So they took me in and it was probably about three hours I waited and they took me in. By this point, it's the middle of the night and this beautiful nurse came up to me and she was asking me questions and she went and got me a blanket and like tucked me in and she was gorgeous. 
And she said, look, I'm just going to go and pass this information now on to the psychiatrist and they'll come down and see you soon. So she came down and she was very dismissive. She was sort of like, if you're not suicidal, then you can go home. And I was like, I need help. Like, I need help. Someone help me. And she went, you just need some sleep. Oh, I'm just going to give you some medication to help you with your sleep. And I told her that I was on this particular medication. And she said, you're probably just having a reaction to the medication. That's probably what's causing all this panic. I'm going to put you on this other medication, but you need to stop breastfeeding. And it was sort of like, you don't really have a choice in the matter. Just do it. Mm. So by this point, it was about three o'clock in the morning and I'd called my mum and she drove over and came and picked me up and took me back to her house. And I took some medication and and finally got a couple of hours of sleep thinking I'm going to feel better. Like I've had the sleep now, that's all I needed. But when I woke up in the morning, I just felt this like I've failed everybody. I've left my husband. I've left my baby. I've made my mum come out in the middle of the night and pick me up. All these thoughts just started of you are not right to be a mum. This is not for you. So that was the start of those really intrusive thoughts. I didn't know. No one said to me, oh, this is what you're experiencing, so we're going to refer you to this person. They said, here's some medication, go home. You feel helpless. You feel so helpless. You feel like I just have to do this on my own and it's the most horrible, Mm. powerless feeling. And I get it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm here to say that I get it. This the system is so overworked. Mm. There's just not enough staff and there's not enough funding and all of these mm. things. Like I get it. I'm not here to say they've treated me terribly or, or any of that sort of thing, but it is just a, a real sign of the system. And I think the only reason why I got through everything that I got through is that I am so damn determined. <laughs> like I don't want to feel like this and I'm going to do everything in my power to stop this, whatever that may be. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to keep going back and asking for answers and asking for help until someone can help me. So I ended up um, going back again to the same GP who prescribed that first medication, sort of telling him about my experience. And by this point, he turned around and he said to me, I've actually been thinking of you and I've been doing some research. I found this place, perinatal specialist, St. John of God, their outpatient service called Raphael. Again, you know, the Christmas period is so hard in this situation. Nothing's open. Everyone's on holidays. It's really short staff. So it's, you just feel like you're hitting brick walls constantly because, you know, I'm making phone calls and there's no one answering the phone calls. And I called and I think I got an answering machine and I left a message and I think they didn't open until like the end of January. It was a hard one because I was sort of then stuck. Mm. So basically he'd said, is there anyone that can, and, and and again, no one at any point in this time had said that there was a mother and baby unit available or I didn't know. Yeah. And, and I didn't know until my second yeah. baby. So they said, is there anyone can help you? So I actually ended up basically living with my parents for probably the first 12 weeks of Oliver's life. Yeah. My husband would go to work, go to our house, do the things he had to do. And then he'd drive back to my parents' house and we were living on like mattresses on the floor of their like basement area. That's how he existed for weeks. And I tried at the end of January going home and I lasted about two days. And I rang my parents crying and saying, I hate being alone. Like I just really struggled. My husband was at work. There was no one else to talk to. I just wanted to be around people because I was just so, I don't know, I just felt like they would protect me or something or protect me from myself. And I can't even put my finger on why. It was just that I just, I couldn't be alone And it wasn't that I was struggling with the tasks of looking after him. You know, I was actually really fortunate because, I hate the word, but he was a very easy baby. There wasn't that problem. It was just me. (laughs) 
And it's such a hard thing to also like admit, you know, the only reason why I'm feeling like I'm failing is because of me, not because of him. He's just a little baby that doesn't, you know, deserve a mother like me. Again, because it's like, I shouldn't be complaining. I have nothing to complain about. I wanted this. I wanted this baby. I tried for so long. Now I should just be happy. Um, That process, I got an admission to the outpatient program. I started regular appointments. I saw their perinatal psychiatrist who was wonderful. I was seeing a clinical nurse consultant and having regular appointments through talking to the psychiatrist. I was diagnosed with PTSD from the birth experience and obviously the feeding. She also said that I had postnatal depression and anxiety or sort of wavering more towards that anxiety. Mm. But I don't remember the discussions that I had or I don't even really remember processing the birth. I remember the parts where it was, you know, I was starting to get out. I was starting to see friends. And then I was referred to like a mother's group. Um, and I always struggled quite badly with, with social anxiety, but I just, I needed to be out. I needed to be with other people. So I was going to mother's group. And for me, it was the more that I'd go out and do something that felt normal, the better I would feel rather than just sitting around at home and being alone with my thoughts. That's what would set that panic in. And that being something that I think really helped with my healing at that point. Mm. I then look down the track as he's getting older and I have all these really beautiful memories really actually of, you know, going for walks yeah. and coffees and play dates at each other's houses and getting to know these people. And now nine, ten years down the track, our kids are still friends and we're still friends. And I have all these really beautiful memories. But um, the physical stuff was my problem mm. and I felt like I was never going to be the same person again. I think in all of this, I really struggled with my identity. It is such a dramatic shift in what you were and then what you are. And I think, um, you know, especially when you're pregnant and, and, you know, it was going through a really difficult pregnancy. So you were the center of attention. You were getting all of the help. You were being looked after and going to the doctors and getting help. And it was all about you. And then this baby came and I had this massive injury that I'd suffered and it was How's he feeding? Is he putting on weight? All the attention shifts to him. And it was like, oh, no, you'll be okay. You can deal with it all. And I struggled so much with that. I get it. I know it's really important for him to put on weight and feed, but hang on. I've had this really traumatic, really awful injury, you know, and I'm really struggling with it. And I don't know if my life or my body's ever going to be the same again. So, yeah, like, you know, what about me? No one had spoken to me about it or what it meant or whether I'd ever properly recover. The only thing that I remember them saying to me is that, oh, you'll never be able to have another vaginal birth because you may end up needing a colostomy. That was what I was told. Um, and actually I did end up suffering a prolapse. I didn't know what it was and I freaked out and I went to the GP and she sort of explained it away and said, oh, no, it's okay. Do some pelvic floor exercises, off you go. That was probably a point when I could have got some really good help and I didn't. <laughs> it's like you've got to grieve that as well. What could have been had I got the right help? Definitely when it comes to the prolapse, I, I didn't know. And it, I'm not meaning for it to be like a bashing on medical personnel. It's just how things work. And that's probably why I want to talk because I'm wanting other people to know, hey, keep going and asking. Yeah. Hey, keep saying I need this help. You're, it's really important to do that because otherwise – it can just be swept under the yeah. rug. You know, making sure that people know that there are these pelvic floor therapists, that there are perinatal mental health services, that there are places where you can go to get that help because at that point I needed it and I didn't know that it existed. Yeah. 
And, you know, the people you rely on to give you that information, maybe they themselves don't know. And that's actually the other thing that I'm really discovering. I guess it will take me on to my second experience Mm. where I was actually the person that went to my then GP and told her I want a referral to Raphael Centre. And she didn't know it existed. She had no idea. It's one of these things that I'm so passionate about because I'm like, if my GP doesn't know it, the average person's not going to know it. Why can't we put information in these contact points where these mothers are going to be going, like the community health centres, like childcare centres, like doctors? There has to be a point where this information gets out because we can't rely on people going to research. When you're in that, your brain's not functioning no. properly. Like I couldn't make a decision. I didn't know. Again, this was 2013 and I remember this particular day um, when he was just a newborn and my husband had gone out and I think come home and I said, I just need 10 minutes. I'm just going to sit in the sun. And I remember going outside and taking my phone and starting to Google people with postnatal depression. I didn't know anyone. The only person that I could think of was like Jessica Rowe and Brooke Shields, yeah. who had gone through it a million miles before. And so I was like Googling going, okay, so they've had it. What was their experience? How did they recover? Because I wanted to know what I needed to do. And that's all I needed to look up. No one was really talking about it. It was very taboo. I remember going to the library and looking for books on it. Okay, what, do I, what steps do I need to follow to get better and feel like myself again? Yeah. As I was coming out, like I felt like I recovered after having Oliver with my anxiety and things. I guess the medication was starting to work. I was seeing somebody really regularly. Um, Raphael actually offered you regular appointments until your child turned five. Wow. It's since changed. So I started off once a week and then it went to once a fortnight and then once a month. And in between that, I was doing lots of things with mother's group and the medication was working and I just felt better. I I don't know if I just sort of pushed everything aside and moved on thinking, okay, I feel great now. There was a lot of stuff I think I didn't really process. So we got to him being about 20 months and we started chatting again, thinking um, it might take a little while. Could go either way. I've done it once before now, so maybe it'll just work. And so I think we went a year on and off where we were trying and I had been struggling with a lot of pain and I went to my GP. She was beautiful and really thorough and she had said to me, look, there's some bloods that have come back that I'm a little bit concerned about. There's a marker in here that can be an indicative of ovarian cancer. It's probably nothing. I just want to refer you on. So she'd given me this referral. She was a gynecologist and she worked out of IVF Australia and also the local public fertility centre. So I've gone in to her and she'd gone over everything and she went, right, that's it. I don't want to muck around. I do really want to go in and have a look and just see what's going on. Honestly, this doctor was, I, I actually tear up thinking about her because she saved my life in so many ways. She was my gynecologist at the time and fertility specialist. And then we went on with her as my obstetrician with my last two children. And she was just the most amazing, beautiful, supportive person you could ever imagine. So, yeah, I didn't know what to think at that point. I was sort of in shock. And I think probably like a week before I went in, my husband got a phone call to say that his cousin, who same age as me, had been diagnosed with stage four cervical cancer. And we both sort of looked at each other and went, we need to be taking this a bit more seriously. So by that point, I was really worried and really panicked. And I remember going into the surgery and 
waiting in the room before they wheel you in and just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and sobbing, terrified of what. By this point, I wasn't even focused on whether or not I could have another child. It was whether or not there was they were going to take everything out of me because I had cancer. Mm. So I went in and they had found lesions and growths, but nothing was cancerous, which was an absolute relief. But she also told me that she tried all these different things. She said, everything else looked fantastic, but your tubes, because of these lesions, your tubes are completely blocked. So you'll never be able to conceive a child naturally again. You'll have to do IVF. And she said, there's absolutely no reason other than your block tubes why you can't have another baby. Like this, there's nothing. And I just sobbed. I was like relieved, but terrified. I didn't want to do IVF. To me, it just seemed like this massive gamble that I may not win. Mm. Terrified of how medicalized it was. I was terrified that it wouldn't work, that we'd spend all this money, that we didn't really have. It was such a hard time to be in because I had Oliver and I was so grateful for him. And, you know, again, people going, oh, well, you've got one child. You should be grateful for that, you know. You don't have cancer. So that really toxic positivity, it makes it very hard to speak out and say, hey, this is what I've gone through because I'm so worried that people are going to go, you should be happy that you've at least had one because some people can't have any. Yeah. And it was hard because, you know, he was getting to an age where he was going through catalogues and saying, hey, mummy, look, that's a baby brother. Can we go and buy one? And, you know, talking about other people who's had, you know, brothers and sisters. And he was really desperate for a sibling. And it just made me feel horribly guilty like again that I was failing him and I was failing my husband because I'm the one with the block tubes I think I reflect back now and it was just a horrible time where I probably was very anxious and I was really down on myself because I just felt like a failure I felt like if my husband could go to somebody else he might be able to have children with them and you know it would be so much less stressful than everything we've been through so it probably took us about six months before I was even mentally ready to even consider trying IVF so we ended up going back to the same doctor um, when we were ready but going through the public clinic that operates out of the same hospital where Oliver was born which I cannot rate highly enough it was amazing and she was amazing and she was really friendly with Oliver and she said what's your order what would you like and he said I want a brother and a sister and I'm like hold on let's just you know step back here we started going through the whole process she explained everything to me and you know just always happened really quickly this was 2017 mm. so I had to start with all the medications and had to go into an egg retrieval and at the end of it all we ended up with six embryos and I went in for my first transfer mm. the day that it happened we'd left Oliver at my nan's house we got up and went and did the transfer and it's all very like this really quick little in and out and okay you might be pregnant in a couple of weeks and it's just such a bizarre sort of state to be in where it's like you don't know what to do next mm. so we went to pick Oliver up and my nan was there and she was just like my angel. She was always the person that was there for me for everything. And when we told her I was pregnant with Oliver, she was so overjoyed. She put my husband in a headlock. Like, you know, she taught me how to drive. She bought me my first car. I just grew up with her. She was my second mother. And this particular day she knew we were doing IVF and we said, oh, you know, we've done this embryo transfer. And she was like, oh, I can't wait. I'm going to get a new great grandchild. I was about four days past that transfer and my mum called me and said that she died. Mm. And it was just the most oh, heartbreaking, heart-wrenching thing. Mm. And so I was pregnant, not pregnant, processing her passing away. You know, I didn't know what to think. I just thought this is just not going to work. Like I'm not, I can't be, I'm in so much stress and anxiety and sadness and overwhelm that 
it's just not going to work. And I actually got to the day of her funeral and I found out that it hadn't taken, which it was a shock, but not. So it took me a long time to get over that. It was a very long process of grief for me that's probably still going on and it's been five years. Mm. So much of it's tied up in all of our fertility stuff because she was there and she knew what was going on. And I saw her the very last time that I'd had that very first embryo transfer. So that actually really triggered me when I was going into other embryo transfers because it just took me back to that day. And so I think I went through a second transfer and that also failed. That wasn't until the following year. With that transfer, I really struggled because it was the first one since my nan had passed away. She's never going to be able to hold this baby. And that just really was a gut punch. So with my third transfer, it was positive and It was another one of those tests like I'd seen many, many years before that was very, very light. And the same thing happened. The doctor had said it's mostly non-viable. In these experiences, I just never knew how to react because I just never knew whether or not I was, you know, I guess being overdramatic by grieving this experience. It was probably like a week or so before we really knew it was a chemical pregnancy. And and then eventually when I actually did, um, you know, like I said, it's such a hard word for me to say when I eventually did miscarry. I remember I just bled all over the bathroom and it was just the most traumatic, awful, horrible experience. I was on my own. It was just heart-wrenching. It was so hard to process not only the fact that my nan had just died, but I was losing this pregnancy that I'd so dreamed of and wished for and hoped that would happen and that she was going to be there for me and... Yeah, it was just this moment that I'll never forget because I just feel like it was the start of everything that kind of happened later on. Um, So by this point, my fertility specialist is getting very frustrated with the whole situation and, you know, I'm going to throw everything that I have at it. Like she was so determined and I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure you have a baby and thank goodness for her because she was just so positive. And yes, she threw everything she could at this next transfer. Um, She also had done a double transfer. So we had two embryos transferred and it was like half of me was going what if we end up with two babies and the other half of me was going oh my god what if we end up with no babies Mm. all i want to do is see a heartbeat but i'm not sure how many i want to see and finally i fell pregnant and it was this really hard moment of holding my breath and wondering what was going on and yeah that pregnancy progressed and i was feeling very much the same as what i did with oliver right my pelvis fell apart I didn't have HD this time, but I had awful, awful morning sickness. Like it went on for a really long time. The more tired I would get, the more sick I would get. Um, He was due at the very, very beginning of January. And she said, because of my very fast labor and my prior experience, she did not want me to go overdue or close to due. She really wanted the baby delivered before sort of 38 or around 38 weeks. And we ended up landing on the 21st of December which would mean that he was actually 37 weeks. Yeah, it was a a really difficult time. And I was just anticipating the arrival of this baby and what would mean I was trying to prepare. I didn't really know what the recovery for a cesarean was going to be like and I was worried about what I could and couldn't do once he arrived. Yeah, I did everything I could, but I was wrecked. By the time we got to his birth, I was ready, but I was exhausted already. Mm. And just a question if I can. During pregnancy with Elliot, did anybody say, hey, you've had postpartum depression before, let's screen you, are you at risk? Like, what was that experience? 
<laughs> funnily enough, now that I think about it, um, when we were going through the IVF clinic and doing all the initial screenings there, a nurse, she, you know, asked about my medical history and, and whatnot. And she said, okay, so do you realize that you're actually a lot more likely to suffer from PND and, and whatnot with an IVF pregnancy? And I went, oh, okay. And I sort of just... I don't know. I just brushed it off. I don't know why. I don't know what I was thinking. I guess I was so focused on everything else and the fact that I just wanted to be pregnant that I didn't think about what happens down the road. I'm going to tackle this part and then I'll worry about yeah. that later. But then I just thought that was all just a bunch of really shitty circumstances that caused me to end up like that. And obviously giving birth was the reason why I felt the way that I felt, you know, this time is different. So it's not going to be like that. And it was so far down the road too. By this point, it was five years. It It's something that I didn't consider to be a big deal anymore. And, you know, again, you know, you look back at, on the past and go, oh, my God, look at all this. Hey, bright lights. And I'd already been told that I had to have a cesarean. So I'd sort of already made my peace with that. I was still terrified because surgery still terrified me and I was really worried again about being awake, but I was confident in my fertility specialist slash obstetrician. So everything was really straightforward with him. His birth was great. I was terrified going in. Again, I was in tears and my doctor was comforting me and she was amazing and everyone let, you know, my husband be there when I was getting my spinal block mm. and it was actually my doctor's 50th birthday oh. that day. She came in especially, which was really lovely and it was just like a quick, easy experience that just I was in shock about how normal it was and how I was unaffected by it and yeah everything was great with him and they were also really supportive you know I felt like things were going really well and Oliver met his little brother and you know it was all wonderful and I probably got to day three and I started feeling those real anxious that heart pounding sweating and I thought oh maybe it's just that hormonal shift and I remember my doctor coming in and I sort of said to her I'm not feeling right and she said, you know, speak to the nurses. They can give you the names and numbers of people to contact. And they were wonderful. But again, we were discharged on Christmas Eve. Mm. So nothing was open. And the nurses had sort of said that to me. Oh, we've contacted this person and this person, but they're on leave. So I think that started compounding all those feelings of being helpless started coming back. You know, I'm needing help and no one can help me. Everything's closed. I'm trapped. Mm. And it just sort of started to build and build and build. I remember the night before um, discharging, I went down to the feeding clinic and there was this nurse there and I just poured out the whole experience that I had with all of that. And, you know, I told her how hard the feeding experience was and how traumatised I was by that and how much of a failure I felt. Um, my experiences were breastfeeding was quite pushed and, you know, you just have to push past it and it'll all be okay and it'll all work out. And she just stood there and she looked at me in the eye and she just sort of turned at me and she goes, can I just ask you a question? Do you just, just think, just just give me the first thing that pops into your head. Do you want to breastfeed? And my immediate answer was no. And she went, well, then why the fuck are you doing it then? <laughs> and I wanted to throw my arms around her and hug her because I was like, God, you are the first person who said that to me. And like, it's almost been like permission yeah. where you've said you've had this really shitty experience before, which is obviously contributing to this really awful state that you're in. Why are you pushing yourself? Why are you doing mm. it? That's the first person that had ever said that to me. Incredible that she asked about you and what you wanted, not this yes. is what you have to yes. do. Yeah. Still, I pushed on because, it, it, like, for me, it was something that I had to do to prove that I was a better mother than I had been to Oliver or whatever it was. So I did persist with it for probably longer than I should have. So we came home from the hospital and I had the same experience. I just started progressively more and more anxious. But... I just felt 
like I wasn't able to do it. I felt like I was failing Oliver because I wasn't able to give him the same amount of attention. I was really panicked about my husband. I was trying to constantly protect him and, you know, not put the burden on him because I felt like, okay, well, I made that happen to him last time. Again, I don't want him to lose control. I couldn't handle it anymore. I didn't want to feel like this and I wanted someone to tell me what to do to make myself feel better. In all of this, I wasn't on any medication. I wasn't getting any kind of mental health support because I guess I felt like I was fine. So just to confirm, you weren't still in that outpatient program with Raphael? No. So that had finished around the time that Oliver was about one. Okay, wow. I'd sort of discharged out of that. So I ended up calling Panda, who thankfully were open, Mm. and I spoke to some beautiful people. I think I actually started talking a lot about my nan, and I think all that grief hit me like a bus. It was, you know, this baby's here and she's not. She was the first person I called after Oliver was born. I woke her up at one o'clock in the morning and said, he's here. And she was overjoyed. And I couldn't do that again. Just that grief hit me like a truck and it sent me spiraling, I think. Um, Straight away, I knew. You know, it was New Year's Eve and I said, I need to find somewhere that's open. My GP is shut until January. I can't hold on. I need to go and see someone and start on medication and all of that. I want to hit this on the head before it becomes Mm. too much. I found a doctor who I'd never really seen before and they were open and she was so lovely and so understanding and I told her my whole history and she decided that she was going to put me on the medication that I had been on before because she knew that I'd had a good experience and she made phone calls to the mother safe to make sure that it was still okay for breastfeeding and um, she put me on a very high dose to start with and then gave me a PRN, like a benzo that I had never had experience with before in my life. She basically just said, this will be helpful for when you sleep, if you are having those moments of panic, which will help me with my recovery. And that was pretty much it. So um, my mum had decided just after Elliot was born that she wanted us to go away on a holiday. So I thought, actually, that'll be really good. It'll be a nice distraction. It'll be somewhere nice for Oliver to go um anyway we went and I was feeling progressively more awful Mm. I guess by this point it was a very high dose of this medication I was having quite bad side effects I was sweating feeling really sick in the stomach off my food again really struggling with sleep so I was taking some of this other medication to help me with that so I didn't realize what the side effects of this other medication were going to be. That was sort of causing more issues at the same time. And I was just feeling terrible. So unfortunately, during this holiday, just before we were about to leave, um, Oliver and Tim were involved in a serious accident where they almost lost their lives. Mm. We ended up okay, but it could have gone very badly. So Tim ended up in a very bad place very quickly because he felt very responsible and we could have lost Oliver. And so that just absolutely pushed me 100% over the edge. Mm. I was already feeling terrible. And by that point, I just escalated into absolute panic. I was so worried that I was actually going to end up with psychosis because I thought I was going crazy. I was not eating. I was not sleeping. I spent my entire time so panicked about everybody, checking on everybody constantly. I was so worried about Tim because I was so worried something was going to happen to him. My thoughts became more and more irrational around making sure everybody was safe and that I was doing everything that I could to look after them. And I just felt completely out of control. And once we got back from that holiday, I went to my GP and I said to her, you need to give me this referral to Raphael. I know that they can help me. And she went, what's that? And so I explained everything, gave her all the details and I called them that day and I was sobbing down the phone and I said, you need to help me. I really need help. And she was so beautiful. And she said, 
all right, I can squeeze you in tomorrow and got me in for this appointment with a psychiatrist because that was the first sort Mm -hmm. of step in even just getting your foot in the door. I was just so rattled. I was having thoughts that someone was going to die. I was so frightened. I had these thoughts as well that would never have ever been the case, but I was so terrified that Tim was going to hurt the baby. I don't know why, like, you know, if he would sort of react in any way where it was even like a raised voice, I would cower in fear. I don't know why. He's never done anything like that in his entire life. He has been, honestly, my rock in all of this. Mm. I think I have a lot of guilt and a lot of sadness around the fact that he felt the way that he felt and that I guess I was so caught up in everything that I was going through that I never really noticed. And it probably took us till Elliot's arrival to really realise he was struggling. And again, it contributed to this next series of events because a lot of my irrational thoughts were around him. And I just spent my whole time in this panic that all of this was going to come true. I believed it. I thought it was. And he was getting more frustrated at me because he's like, I don't understand. I'm not going to hurt anybody. And I went, I don't know. You just, I just, this is what I'm thinking. I was feeling like things weren't real. And it's the most horrible experience to be in. And it was constant. I couldn't get out of it. And I wanted to be out of it because I just thought I'm, I'm really losing it. I actually haven't ever really admitted this to anybody, but I would have music in my Mm. head. Just whatever it was, it could be something that I'd heard on the radio or the TV or like a kid's song or whatever, and I would just hear that piece of music over and over and over in my Mm. head. And it just contributed to all those feelings of I am going crazy and it just makes you more anxious and more panicked. And what I remember actually learning is that whole idea of like the lizard brain, you know, your brain's in like lizard mode or whatever (laughs) it is where it's just taken over and it's doing whatever it can to keep you functioning and alive. So it's not making any sense. No, It's like your body's in such a state of distress that it's just taken over. It's like the limbic system or something. So anyway, I went in to see this psychiatrist and I was a mess I just was not functioning I couldn't make a decision I couldn't get words out I thought again I hate the word but I was crazy and I just poured my heart out to him about everything that had happened and my experiences with Oliver and he was so quiet and really calm and his first reaction was have you heard of the mother and baby unit he explained it all and he said I really think it would be very good for you Mm. and that it will really help you sort of make a faster recovery you'll be able to get sleep which will really help there's nurses there that are going to help you you're going to have all the support you need your husband can go and my first reaction was no, especially because I had Oliver and he was just about to start school. Then I sort of said, oh, okay, well, when can I go? And he went, well, I can get you in today if you wanted. I guess that was the one advantage to it being the beginning of the year was that it was empty. Mm-hmm. And he goes, I can have a nurse call you and explain everything and you can take some time to think about it. Just let me know and I can do the paperwork and you can go whenever you like. So I literally was driving out of the car park after I'd seen him and the phone rang and it was the nurse and she chatted to me and was asking me questions and said that he'd filled her in and just you pick a day and you can come so I remember going home and Tim was there and he freaked out I guess he didn't know he didn't understand I mean I was terrified you know you're at that point you're thinking oh my god how did I get here how did I end up being in this situation I spoke to Tim and he was a bit reluctant and I actually only talked to him about this the other day and I asked him his reasonings and he said well it was just a shock of course I'm going to support you but obviously you came home and you told me this thing and I've got a newborn baby in my arms and what are you going to say? So it took a little bit of shuffling. It was really difficult because I actually ended up going in on the day that Oliver started his first day of kindergarten. So we got up in the morning and we drove him to his first day and then I took myself and my newborn baby into the MBU. So I actually remember this whole morning just feeling so horribly guilty and that I was an awful mother for leaving him. And I had to give them information about who was going to pick him up and everything. And I just cried because I thought, what an awful time 
for him, you know, he's going to this whole new experience and here I am leaving him. Like it was just terrible. I really just wanted to get better, but I also didn't want to leave him. It was probably one of the hardest things that I've ever had to do to try and explain to a five-year-old, hey, look, I know you're starting this new big adventure, but by the way, I'm going to be gone for who knows, three weeks, four weeks, whatever it is. So I I do remember my mother-in-law drove me in and my mum came as well. And similar to what you said your experience was, I just sat in that reception area and I just sobbed and held my baby and thought, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Like, this is just the most terrible thing that I've done to everybody. Like, I'm being selfish. In the first week, maybe two, I struggled with being there and thinking whether or not I'd made the right decision and feeling so horribly guilty about putting everybody under the pressure that they had to be under so that I could get better. And yeah, like it took a lot for me to make peace with that. But I think even just being in there though and knowing that other women that were in the same position, like I actually started at a time where a lot of people were sort of come to the end of their experience and they were moving on and I was one of the new ones. So I was halfway in and then more people would show up after me. So I felt like I had some people that were sort of taking me under their wing and being really beautiful and supportive and lovely. And I had the opportunity to see that they were at the other end and they were feeling really good. And then I was the person in the middle. And then I had other people that were coming in where I was sort of taking them under my wing and saying, it's all okay. And this is what's going to happen. And it's all right to feel the way you do. And so it just ended up being the most valuable, rewarding thing that I think I've ever done. And I wouldn't change it for anything. Um, I got to meet some most beautiful women in there. I got to realise that we come from all different types of backgrounds and jobs and family experiences and we were still all the same. I had the advantage where every morning we'd go out and we'd go for a walk and, you know, I know that during COVID no one was really allowed in or out. So we'd go and do our lap of the park. You know, you'd kind of go and do all the things you had to do during, during the day, but it was like, okay, everyone, we're going to go out and have some lunch or, you know, we're going to go do some shopping or let's go get a coffee. And then at night time we'd all watch maths or something silly like that, you know. And so, yeah, it was like a, just a really just positive thing. I was reassured I was doing the right thing for my kids and that, that they weren't going to be scarred by this experience. If anything, they were going to be bolstered by it because I was getting the health that I needed and I was improving my own mental health, which would be improving their mental health. And I was having the opportunity to bond and you can just eat and sleep and focus on you and the baby. And yeah, it's just my experience, honestly, was just the best thing that I've ever done. It's the most terrifying thing in the world to accept that you need that type of help. But um, it's the most rewarding. Absolutely. And, and you know what, for me, I had so much shame around it. And I actually remember people sending me messages and I couldn't even process sending a reply. And I know people that were worried, but I wasn't in a place at that point where I could even get words out to explain what was going on or how I was thinking or feeling to anybody was a really difficult thing to both accept in my own reality and also to then try and explain to other people because I thought oh my god they're just going to judge me I I can look back at it now and go well if they were going to judge me then stuff them but at the time and I know and you know I've gone through experiences now where I can be completely honest with them and they've become my safe people that I can call and tell these things to but it's probably taken my experience of being in the mother and baby unit to know that that's the case it's so hard I think again so much of this infertility experience has really coloured my ability to be able to talk about 
and my mental health experiences post-birth because I just am so worried that people are going to think I'm not a fit mother or that I don't want my babies or that I'm not grateful for everything that I went through to, to get them in the first place. But, and there's always going to be somebody worse off than you. And I think sometimes comparison is the absolute thief of joy. And you can't compare one experience to another because every single one is different. My experience going through a mother and baby unit might have been completely different, even though we went through the same place. Um, you know, we went through at different times. It was different. I got to go out and I got to go on walks and I got to go to the shops and you poor bugger got locked down. I couldn't imagine being in that position. Going into my third pregnancy, it was a discussion that we were having because Rory was a 2020 baby. And by this point, I had learned to make plans for my mental health. And it was one of the plans, but it was also an absolute fear of mine because I knew the experience that I had had and I thought, I don't think that I could cope being in there as beautiful as I know that it was and as supportive as I know as it was. I don't know that I could have coped without knowing that I could get it out and even just going for a walk. There were some days where that was just my way of coping, was literally just going and doing laps of that park around and around and around, sometimes with tears rolling down my face. Oh, yeah. But it was literally (laughs) just getting out and feeling like I still had a little bit of normality. And, yeah, I couldn't imagine being in it in, in the same position that you were in. And I know this is a controversial opinion, but I didn't mind purely because it gave me a sense of privacy because Mm. it was COVID. It's not like people were asking to come visit. So I then didn't have to explain myself. It was a bit of protection. You know, even now when I share my story, my loved ones will say, oh, I didn't know you were going through that. I'm so sorry. And I actually struggle with that because they feel that they could have done more and then I want to take that pain away from them. And it's just, had I been dealing with that at the time, I would have struggled, I think, more. But that's, we we did go for walks, but that was restricted to the grounds in the backyard. Oh, yeah, that's tiny. (laughs) Tiny, so I would yeah. literally be doing laps up like oh. one stretch of the driveway back and forth, tears streaming down my face with the pram. But I was also feeling my intrusive thoughts were I was scared that if I wasn't contained, then what if I do something bad? Yeah. So I, I was comforted by lockdown. <laughs> that actually helped me. Honestly, I would avoid going to like a really busy shopping centre at all costs because I can't cope. And I would go to Westfield constantly when I was in the hospital. And I'm like, how did I cope with it then? Like, I actually really enjoyed it. It was an excursion, but it was also like therapy where it was like, I've managed to do this today Mm. and not panic or, you know, I've achieved something and I've done it without crying. There's such a thing that you, you laugh about, you know, and now for me it's in my review mirror, but at that point in time it was a massive achievement. So those yeah. sorts of things really helped because I had to then, once I came out, get back into the real world. I had to start doing school drop-offs and soccer mm. training and socialising with people. And, I mean, how do you explain where you've been for the past four weeks or whatever it has been when your kids started kindy and, you know, it was just such a bizarre thing and I struggled I really did because it was Mm. you in this beautiful little protective bubble where you knew you're being looked after and if you had a bad day or a bad time someone was there to talk to you about it and you know I had days where I would just cry and cry and cry and whatever nurses would be there and they would rationalize things or explain things to me and they helped a lot with me processing all of my grief around my nan dying Mm. and, and you know the connection with the baby being born so you leave that and you don't have those people anymore that have that understanding and then you've also got to throw yourself back into real life. I came out and, you know, I was meeting all these new people through Oliver starting school and I didn't really tell anybody. I remember going to Oliver's classroom for the very first time and they had their books out on the tables and one of them was like, a, you know, what I did on the weekend and Oliver's was I went and visited mummy at Burwood in the hospital. 
and like a picture of him and that. And I was like, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> I can again look back on it now and sort of laugh and go, it's his way of processing and that's great and it's probably something I'll keep forever really. But I'm like, this five-year-old should not be doing this. You know, the poor thing. He has no idea. In terms of coming out, did you get to do the staged discharge? Yes. It was so good in a way because it was really well managed and you could make your plan for what you were going to do, talk through the strategies that you are going to use to cope, know that it was there. If it all hell help broke loose, you could go straight back. Like if I wasn't coping, they could drop me straight back and I'd be yeah. back in the safe place. Then when you got back, you could debrief over everything and know that you cope through things. And again, mine was having to go to birthday parties and mm. soccer and meet people. And I remember saying, how am I going to cope? It was just like amazing because they gave me a step-by-step instruction of these are all the things, all these strategies you can use. You know how to do these strategies. If it, if it doesn't work out, then you can go. There's no reason why you have to be there and don't worry about what anyone else thinks of you. Mm. And it was like, oh, it's giving me permission to just cope, which I would never have learned had I not been there. Yeah. I wouldn't give myself permission to go right, I'm not coping, it's time to go. I'd go, well, I have to be here because they're going to think I'm strange or mean or not nice or rude or whatever it is. I'd be so panicked about what other people were thinking. And I've learned the power of boundaries from being in the MBU, the power of making decisions that really suit myself and my family in order to protect my own mental health. In terms of medication, were they able to get you on something with no side effect? No. So I remained on the same medication that I was on and that's where I learned I was probably put on a very high dose very quickly. I also had had the bad reaction to the PRN and that they should have been used in a very different way. So they kept me on the same dosage and they wanted it to go up, I think, but they were doing it very, very, very gradually. And they also then introduced a different PRN that didn't have those side effects and gave me some things to help me with my sleep just so I could actually recover. And they explained it to me, this medication that we're giving to you to help you sleep is actually going to help the first medication work better and you need to sleep and really recover your brain and I really 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 struggled horribly Um, I don't know if you did it but they can take the baby every night for you for the first week and then it's like every second night and all of that Um, when they said that to me half of me was relief because I can just have a solid sleep but the other half was like no I can't do that I'm horrible if I do that like I have to look after him that's my responsibility you know that horrible guilt over I should be doing this I'm his mother and I really struggled with anxiety separating from him so it was a struggle it was amazing because I would literally just have no dreams no nothing just dead to the world resting my body and waking up feeling like I actually got rest but it was also very hard to wrap my brain around actually letting him go yeah I get that and you said going into Rory's pregnancy you did planning for your mental health this time what did that look like am I right to assume sorry that Rory's IVF baby no oh yes Okay. So I, we just had his first birthday. He started at childcare and I went back to my job. Um, It was the end of the school holidays and I was feeling a bit off. Didn't think very much of it. And I was really struggling with my anxiety. It was separating from Elliot, especially. I remember the very first day I went back to work, I came home and I just picked up Elliot and I held him and I sobbed. And I just thought, why am I struggling so much? I thought I'd 
been, you know, I'd gotten better. I was still, um, I was still working with Raphael. So when I was discharged from the MBU, I went through their outpatient programs, uh, which was beautiful because it was with all the girls that I was in the hospital with. And so we got to catch up. So I did that. And I also was having very regular appointments every few weeks with their Raphael outpatient. And so they had all of my paperwork. They knew my whole history. They knew everything. And it was great. I went back to work and I just really struggled with the transition. My anxiety was back, you know, struggling with eating, Mm. struggling with sleeping and I had these weird little twinges that I was getting where it was like that round ligament pain and I'm kind of used to it with my EDS but this was different because it was that real distinct round ligament pain so the next morning I got up and I found some old tests from when I had done IVF that were expired like six months expired they were in the back (laughs) of the cupboard and it lit up like a Christmas tree and I thought I can't be pregnant like this is not right again I was in that state of shock where I didn't say anything to anybody I didn't say anything to my husband I threw the test in the bin and just kind of went I'll deal with this later and I just thought about it all day because the risk being pregnant was ectopic pregnancy especially with Mm. the way my tubes were and the more I started thinking about it the more those thoughts started coming back like oh my god what's going on am I pregnant am I not I've only just gotten over this whole thing with Elliot I don't want to go through this again that anxiety just spiked and on the way home from work I bought some actual pregnancy tests maybe it's just that the pregnancy test is not working like it can't be because I can't I can't fall pregnant so I took a test same thing happened it lit up like a Christmas tree and I'll never forget walking out of the bathroom and my husband walked around the corner holding like a very very little Elliot still in his arms like he's still a baby he's one like just turned one tiny and I just showed him the pregnancy test and he just looked at it and he went no 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 and like it's a yeah, I'd still, like, I'd kind of la- I laugh about it now, but it was, like, a really shocking situation to be in. Yeah, that actually sent me on a very quick downward spiral that I think I struggled with any nail anxiety very, very quickly. Um, and I was just so lucky to be in the position that I was in. So I remember going into the doctor to get a blood test, and then I sort of just spilled out all of this stuff. I, I feel the same way, like I'm going backwards really fast. And I'd also stupidly now upon reflection I had stopped medication and I didn't know really whether I should be taking any medication when I was that newly pregnant I didn't know what to do and even the doctor was like oh, I'm not even sure I don't want to prescribe you anything in case there's a problem mm. um, perhaps you need to go back to the Raphael Centre and speak to the psychiatrist and just see what they can recommend so that was the longest weekend of my life I remember just sitting underneath a weighted blanket for the whole weekend just rocking back and forth feeling awful because yeah. I didn't know how to feel this was such a different experience for us where it was just such a surprise we didn't know what it was going to look like we didn't know whether or not it was going to be viable and I started having all these intrusive irrational thoughts this is going to be too much for us my husband's going to leave me you know to how are we going to afford it to I'm going to end up in the MBU again and then it actually got to a point where I said to him very honestly I'm considering terminating and it's a awful thing to admit I've really had it in my head I couldn't do it again. I could not go down that same path and I didn't want to. I didn't want to have that experience. And and the fact that I didn't know what to do about taking medication to even help my mental health where it might impact on the baby and it was just a really awful state of limbo to be in for six or seven weeks until we knew whether or not the pregnancy was viable. Again, I was really lucky because I was already seeing the psychologist and she talked me through everything because I know that Tim turned to me and he said, I don't think that you do. I don't think this is you talking. I think this is your anxiety talking. This is you panicking and jumping to the worst case scenario. 
And so he was really able to help me. And then with the psychologist, he actually came in with me to some appointments. And so it actually was really good because I could process all of that and sort of realize it's me being very frightened, like terrified of going down the same path again. But the psychologist was able to say to me, you're okay now. You can do this. If you've done it once, you can do it again. And look at all these things that you have in place that are going to help you. So that was the beginning of the opportunity to have all of these supports in place to help me through. Mm. So again, I went back on medication and I went on very, very slowly. I was seeing the psychologist really regularly and yeah, it sort of turned around very quickly. The lady at the scanning place was so lovely and she's like, chat, 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 and looking at things and not really acknowledging and everything. And I just said to her, is the baby where it should be? She goes, oh yeah, there it is, you know, and pointed it out and look, there's the baby, there's the heart. Because I just had prepared for the absolute worst. They're going to tell me it's ectopic. So I hadn't actually wrapped my brain fully around another baby and another child coming and any of that sort of thing until I got to that point. So that was when I started really processing and going, okay, this is real but I can also do it. And I did everything in my power to put as many supports in place as I could to help me. Yeah. And I mean, unfortunately, the day of our 12-week scan was the day that some lockdown laws came in. So COVID was floating around in the background. I'd been constantly calling the clinic asking what their rules were around people coming because I really needed Tim there with me. And they assured me everything was fine. Anyway, when I walked in with my husband, the lady at the desk said he needs to leave. She goes, our new rules come in at midday today. He can't be here. And I've just burst into tears throughout the whole scan. Like everything was fine. Um, so I felt horrible because he missed out on a lot. It was only just lucky that I went back to the same obstetrician and I said, I'm sorry, I think you owe me, you know, a free one now because you told me I can't have any more children. (laughs) And she laughed and she was just overjoyed for us and she knew everything that I'd Mm. gone through. So she was there then and was making sure that everything was in place for me throughout the pregnancy. She would bend over backwards to make sure I got all the things that I needed. She would check, check and check and triple check that Tim could be there when he needed to be there for me and that the hospital was very very aware of Mm. my history so it became a really uplifting experience because I was acknowledged I was made to feel like I was going to get support no matter what and I was constantly reassured you've done this before you can do it again you've got all these supports in place we're all here for you And so, yeah, the next experience, just having Rory, was just amazing. And can I just confirm, you didn't actually experience postpartum with Rory? I did not, no. So I was medicated. I was seeing someone regularly. They even went so far as to like send a letter to the hospital to outline my history and my experience so that everyone was aware while I was in there. And we had the most beautiful nurses that were so unbelievably supportive. The the obstetrician was very good at making sure that I was aware about the medication that I was on and how that all worked. Like she was very clear on all of that and that she also organised the paediatrician to be there to check up on him and to make sure that he wasn't suffering side effects and that there could be the very off chance that he might end up in special care. I actually still was on a very low dose by comparison to other people that I know whose kids never had a problem. I know. Unfortunately for us, Rory had, we don't even really know what it was or whether it had to do with medication, but he vomited a lot from birth and he was losing a lot of weight. And so they were actually saying that they weren't going to be able to discharge us until he could put on that weight. And yeah, it was stressful. But we're in this beautiful room in this hospital with beautiful staff and it was almost like a little holiday. (laughs) So it was like such a different experience, even though it was difficult because of COVID. It was probably the best experience I could have had, even with the fact that Rory had all these sort of health issues. 
and I didn't descend into that fear state was testament to the fact that I was obviously doing better and that I could manage my distress and that while I knew that it wasn't good, that I knew that he was okay and that I wasn't going to start really ruminating on the what-ifs and the worst-case scenarios. So he's now two and he has come along, I think, to teach me that I could do it and I actually really honestly believe that my nan just sent him to me to show me I could, that I could have courage, I could be brave, I could be strong and I could do it even though it was still managed and I had all of those protections in place, I could do a postpartum and know what it felt like to not go down that dark path. Like I could do it again if I really, I just, I keep saying that to my husband, I would love another one and he's like, no way. It's only been two years since you had Rory, but you've been involved in the design of an MBU here in Sydney, which is public and which has just opened. Yes. So for some context here, when Emma was in the MBU and also when I was in the MBU, it was the only one in New South Wales. And it was private. We had no public MBUs in the state. When I found out that it was 12 beds in the entire state and you need a private health insurance or a lot of money to be able to pay, I said over and over and over again, I am so lucky to be here. Mm -hmm. I'm so lucky that they had a bed. I'm so lucky that I had the financial ability to pay for it. I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't have had that. And I just kept thinking, what about all these people that aren't so lucky, that may not have the money, that may live in other parts of the state, that may not know that it existed. So I actually got involved in the project when I was pregnant with Rory. There was a, a call that went out on social media that asked for people who had experiences with postnatal depression or who had had hospital admissions for feedback on their experiences. So I filled out the document and then I had some Someone from New South Wales Health or Western Sydney Health contact me asking if I would like to be what they called a consumer representative. Mm. And so my role was to sit on the panel with probably about 30 people from New South Wales Health, nurses and doctors and everyone that could provide their feedback, plus all the planning people and the architects that were designing. And it was, yeah, a 12-month process. And basically they had the idea of where they were going to put it. They were also had just gone out of the experience of designing the one that opened up in um rpa rpa that's it so they had been through the process of that but it was just so eye-opening the whole experience you know i i had just gone to the you know see it in person i said to everybody it was just so valuable for me and i honestly feel like it contributed as well to helping me get through this last period of postpartum with having Rory. So I was pregnant when I had the first meeting and then he was only a newborn in all of the other meetings. And it just helped. It gave me power back. It gave me an opportunity to use my brain in a different way, to reflect and think about my experiences and also like what about my experiences I could use to contribute. And while, you know, I wasn't the architect or, you know, a builder or anything like that, I really felt like I had so much power to influence what it could be for families and and how it could make lives better. And I felt so included. They really valued my feedback. Like they would say, hey, this is what we're thinking. What do you think? And they'd directly address me. And every process should be like this. The people that are going to use this, they need the opportunity to have a hand in the design. And I took into that whole thing that when I walked into the MBU that I was in, it didn't feel like a hospital or a health facility. Mm. 
It, it did in certain respects, but it mostly felt like home or a hotel. And it helped so much because it took away that extra layer of feeling like I'm in a mental health facility, which reduces that stress and that fear. So that was my main goal in all of this was to keep saying, hey, you want this space to feel as least clinical as possible because you're also going to have not only the mothers, but their babies, their families, other children. And the more you can make it feel like a home environment, the better it's going to be for everybody. And it's also going to contribute to all of these people's recovery. It's going to be a faster thing, especially in the space that we were in, as you would know as well. It was not a clinical environment. So you, it felt better. I didn't, you didn't walk in there and think, oh my God, I'm really in a hospital. And because that can have really negative outcomes for how much you recover. You know, this stuff is just, I'm just so passionate about it because I want to make a difference for other people. People need to be able to access this. And I was so lucky to go to the opening a week or two ago now. And it was just the most eye-opening, mind-blowing experience. And I actually got to cut the ribbon like it was... It was one of the proudest moments of my life. I, I, I Just walking around, even being there, because I hadn't seen it in person, and I just walked in and my breath was taken away. I couldn't I couldn't wipe the smile off my face, but at the same time I had tears in my eyes. So I thought, this is so great, but then now there's going to be so many people having the worst experiences of their lives here. And I don't know, at the same time I think, well, you know what, I've got the opportunity to contribute to their healing. Yeah. And so I feel honoured, for want you know, of a better word, that I hope that, it makes a difference and that they can end up being here where I am looking back and going, that was such a valuable thing for me. And I have no doubt that they will because they are a special place. And yeah, I when you sent me the video of the opening, I burst into tears because <laughs> just knowing that there is a public MBU, there's a yes. second one in Sydney now, which mm-hmm. is awesome. And the fact that someone was able to give input, who'd experienced yeah. this, who knows what it's like to walk through those doors. And that was what it was. I walked through those doors and I was back yeah. in that space where I was and I was looking at it through those eyes. I had a little bit of time before all the FSCVs kicked off. So I got to go and look around it mostly on my own. Yeah. And I, it, the thing that really got me in all of this though, is that it's still not enough. Like, I know, I know it's positive and I know it's wonderful and I know it exists. I just want there to be more. Like when I was in the MBU, we had mums that were coming from Tamworth. And so they were very isolated because they didn't have the opportunity for friends and family just to pop in and see them. You know, they were separated from their own children. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, there definitely needs to be more regionally. There needs to just be more in general. You know, just yeah. everywhere. Right through my body now, I want to just rattle cages and say, hey, you know, let's let's keep going forward. And you should be so proud of yourself. Yeah, I know that one day when my kids are older, I can say, hey, you know, I did something with this and yeah. I really hope it's going to be a really positive place for whoever gets to be there and that's all I can hope for. And I'm so thankful and so grateful. It gave me so much opportunity to feel like I was giving back you know which makes my heart happy yeah it makes my heart happy too (laughs) so thank you thank you so much for talking to me and just thank you in general because it's mums like you who've gone through this who've lived it who give others hope absolutely if I can pass on any message it's that I guess you've got to put yourself in the picture and I I think about it all the time you know I pick up my nine-year-old from school and I look in the rear vision mirror at him and I think 
I did it. Mm. Look at that. I've gotten nine years down the track from what was one of the most awful experiences of my life and I've survived and I've thrived and I've gone on and I've done it again. From when I, you know, in 2013 where all I could see on Google was a story about Jessica Rowe to now. So, you know, what what you're doing is just such an important thing. You've turned yourself around and made this really positive space for people to be able to share and feel powerful over their own stories and giving people that indication that, yes, you can get better. Thank you to all our listeners for holding space for today's story. If you like this episode, please leave a review and rating to help me bring you more amazing content. Join the conversation and be featured on the podcast by sharing your story through my website, perinatalstoriesaustralia.com. If these stories are a bit too much to listen to or to read right now, then come back another time. Protecting your mental health is the number one priority. As always, this podcast and its associated blog and social media accounts is not a substitute for therapy or for getting help. No medical advice is provided, only lived experiences. If any of this does resonate though, please reach out to a medical professional. See you next time.